0: Hello and welcome to Clout, a podcast profiling Australia's future leaders in Asia. I'm Brodie Burns-Williamson. And I'm Lucy Du. Thanks for joining us. So each week we talk to Aussies making an impact in their community to learn about the dash of language, the pinch of culture and the blind luck that led them to where they are today. We ask our guests to take us on their journey to Asia capability by sharing with us their choice of food, song, show, and person to help us understand what being an Aussie with clout is all about. Hello, everybody. My guest today is Francisco, a friend and fellow community builder who, similar to me, is passionate and committed to empowering women in business, entrepreneurship, and leadership. Frances is an innovation expert, serial entrepreneur, and champion of women-led businesses. She has built businesses and startups, mentored founders, and is truly passionate about solving the problem of the gender gap in business and entrepreneurship. Frances graduated from the University of Melbourne with a double degree in commerce and arts with quintuple majors, two of which were Chinese language, Mandarin, and Asian studies. With an extensive experience in her career across investment banking, consulting, education, and more, Frances is currently the Chief Community Officer of One Roof, a community of women leaders and entrepreneurs. Today, we ask Frances to take us on her journey to Asia Capability by nominating a food, a song, a TV show, and person that help us understand what being an Aussie with clout is all about.
1: Welcome, Frances. Hi, Lucy. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, well, before we get into your nominations, can you first just tell us a little bit about your background growing up across you know Australia and Asia and globally?
1: Absolutely. I'd love to. So I was born in Melbourne to Chinese Malaysian parents and growing up I also lived for part of my childhood in the Philippines from the age of six and that gifted me a bit of a hybrid accent because I think people often forget that um, the Philippines was a colony of the United States for a little Mm. while. And I've also worked and studied in China. So I did an exchange at Tsinghua University in mm. Beijing and have volunteered in sort of regional areas in China. And I've also spent part of my working career across uh, Malaysia, working in Kuala Lumpur, as well as Hong Kong. So that's me in a high level wow. nutshell. And-
0: <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. A globe really, from a very young age. <laughs> Well, you talk about your parents being Chinese-Malaysian, so I think this is a good starting point for your first nomination of food. What do you have for us today?
1: The food I've chosen today is one of my absolute favorite foods, which is Assam Laksa. Assam Laksa is a specialty noodle soup of the Malaysian island of Penang, where my mum is originally from. And it's quite different to your traditional idea of laksa, I would Mm. say. It's got a really unique flavor because it's got a seafood base or more specifically a fish soup base as opposed to a typical meaty, coconutty type. Mm base asam laksa has got really rich beautiful tones of asam which is tamarind that really sets it apart so i invite everyone to try it out it's quite addictive it's got that beautiful spicy sour combination and really interesting or random ingredients like pink torch ginger pineapple slices and this sweet prawn paste called heko. so it's really uncommon as well i wouldn't know where to recommend anybody in Melbourne even get it. So. <laughs>
0: that was my, my <laughs> next question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's worth a trip to Penang, though. <laughs> well, we'll definitely add notes to the Luxor in the show notes and Frances has promised me that she was going to make it for me. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, for the next nomination of music, you have picked... Tonghua by Guangliang which for many um, anyone really growing up or spending time in in China or outside during I think it was the early 2000s if I'm not mistaken this is a very classic mando pop song so tell us why you chose this song today
1: I feel like Tonghua by Guangliang or in English it's called fairy tale and Guangliang's English name is Michael Wong I think it's a cult classic. And I first discovered this song when I was in senior high school. And during the school holidays, I went to a really small rural town in China called Hanzhong in Shanxi province to volunteer and to teach English to primary school children. And so I spent the Australian summer there, which was unfortunately China's very cold winter. Mm -hmm. And On the weekends, we'd hang out with the teachers and partake in the national pastime of karaoke. And, you know, that's really where I got the chance to practice my Chinese. And "Tonghua" was one of the first songs that I could fully sing and fully understand in Chinese. And I nominated the song because I think it's a really beautiful poetic song. It's a real tearjerker as well. Um, It's very catchy. And I don't want to give away any spoilers, but I also recommend anyone listening to this look up the music video because it's just you know a gorgeously heartbreaking story but also a really human story and i feel no matter how much mandarin you know or don't know or how strong a link you have to chinese culture it's just a really beautiful human story at the end of the day that people can really relate to Mm. and connect over
0: well let's have a listen When you talk about the song, actually, Fran, it reminds me of the first time I actually watched The Lion King when I was five. And at that point I couldn't speak any English because I'd just moved to Australia. And despite not being able to understand anything that was said, and I feel as though I can give spoilers for The Lion King. (laughs) So when (laughs) Simba's father, you know, dies... I was in tears and I feel, you know, certain songs or movies and scenes, it doesn't matter whether you can understand the spoken word, really. Some of those emotional connections still, you know, kind of transcends across different cultures and languages. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I do want to ask about your time in Hanjong because when I did look it up, it is literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, It's about probably in between Xi'an and Chengdu. What kind of prompted that location and what made your parents send you there over summer? Yeah. So
1: this was the location because my Chinese teacher in high school had a friend with a connection to the school there. And so I went with my sister and a friend of mine who was also studying Chinese at the time and we literally lived on campus there and got to know what it was like to live in rural China and we had to get around, you know, we were forced to use our Chinese. And um, my parents sent us there because mainly to learn Chinese, Chinese or Mandarin is my second or third language. And Mm. so I feel like I've constantly been studying it. I really enjoyed studying it as well as an Australian-born Chinese. I went to Chinese school on the weekends and was one of the very few people who actually enjoyed it, I would say. (laughs) Yeah, a bit of a nerd and love learning languages. And I've always thought that, you know, learning to write the characters is absolutely beautiful. It was actually a bit confusing for me because I first started learning Chinese when I was in the Philippines, actually. Wow. yeah, the Philippines is a, is such a melting pot of different cultures and living in Manila, you know, the capital of the Philippines, there's a really strong community of Chinese people there and hmm. at the school that I attended everybody had to learn Chinese. But when I first started learning, it was in the traditional mandarin style. Interesting. Lo- yeah, and so when I moved back to Australia and started Chinese school, I was so excited because I was like, "Oh yes, this is another connection. It's something that I can continue on, but I was mortified <laughs> because the written word was simplified. And so yeah. for me, there were like strokes missing. And <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'd also learned the traditional pinyin, which is the popomofa style. Yes. And then when I came back to Australia, it was the sort of like English alphabet pinyin. Yes. So I, I actually talking about this now, I had to relearn a different type of Chinese, and wow. I think I was lucky to be at an age where you know my brain could switch over. But I think it'd be much harder <laughs> if, if I, was, I was an adult now. But yeah, actually, that that
0: was a, an interesting experience for me for sure. And I remember, and I never learnt traditional Mandarin. I went straight to simplified. I had friends when I was studying in Beijing as well who had learnt the traditional form. And they were much older, so much less kind of flexible like you to to switch. But the rules are very different. It's not simply, you know, taking away strokes. It's quite, you know, inconsistent. And there's a lot of history about how it, you know, became simplified as well. Um, But it's definitely quite challenging and not as easy as you would think to switch from more strokes to less strokes. (laughs)
1: Oh, absolutely! It's <laughs> it's like saying, oh, I speak English, but then going to you know various different um, you know English speaking countries around the world where perhaps the accent is different, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that was a steep learning curve. Absolutely. Well, you made it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, but then when I went back to Hong Kong, I oh, think it was. Was it Hong Kong? Uh, when I was working there, I, I want to say, was it Hong Kong or maybe I was traveling in Taiwan? Hong Kong, where, have, yeah, and Taiwan both used yeah, traditional. They both used traditional. And so when I was I'm um, traveling or working there, I had to, like, try and, you know, go back into the depths of my memory and, and pull forward some of those characters to try and read again. So, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a bit
0: of switching. <laughs> Wow. Now for TV show, what have you picked for us today? So the TV show I've chosen
1: is Journey to the West. Which features the famous Monkey King or Sun Wukong and growing up I watched lots of different iterations of this whether it was through cartoons or the live action series and even comic books along the way this was a story that I was exposed to and it was shared with me as a child and growing up and I still love it even today mm. so if anyone who doesn't know I'll just quickly share the storyline follows you know a group of characters who go on lots of different adventures and technically I think from memory it's something of a pilgrimage and so you've got this band of really unlikely heroes you've got mm. some Wukong, who's really cheeky monkey king who can do magic. And then, you know, you've got this Zhu Bajie, who is also known as as Pigsy, I believe, who's like this half animal, half human. And then you've got a couple of other characters and they all go on different adventures. And I chose this because it is the first thing that comes to mind when I think of things that I, I watched or, or was shown mm. growing up. But now thinking about that, you know our conversation, I've realized that it's it was my first foray into Chinese folklore and mm. folk religion. You know, my first exposure to Chinese mythology, but also different philosophies like Taoism and Buddhist theology. So it was you know in hindsight and, and looking deeper into it, pretty complex material. But you know, I just loved it at the time for the costumes, the quirky characters, and <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) And And the martial arts, we can't forget, you know, the Kung Fu. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, exactly. And one thing that we chatted about before this episode is how reflecting, again, because I watched it as a kid as well, that there's actually a lot of themes that's quite cross cultural and global in terms of the story and the morals, I guess, that come from it, which I think is quite interesting.
1: Yes, totally agree. I was really fascinated to learn, for example, that, you know, within Indian culture, they've got a monkey god as well called Hanuman. And, you know, there are strong Indian ties uh, to Buddhism and Buddha as well. So I really appreciated seeing how a show, a a cartoon that I watched growing up had those really beautiful ties, intersectional, cross-cultural, international, and, and really global links and absolutely in terms of the morals I feel like the cartoon shared a lot of really important life lessons and philosophies growing up so I have great
0: great appreciation (laughs) for for the show yeah I'm curious to know have you shown your kids this I haven't yet
1: No, I haven't, but I absolutely will after this. They're definitely <laughs> at the right age where yeah. I'm, I'm wanting to expose them to more Chinese types of shows. Mm. And it's amazing. I think, you know, the exposure that they have to shows on YouTube is really fantastic because I'm definitely able to show them, you know, a wide variety of cartoons, like Chinese speaking cartoons. Mm. And, but um,
0: I will definitely be sharing this with them too. <laughs> Great. And finally... Who have you nominated for us as a person of clout?
1: So the person I've chosen today is Natalie Tran. She's an Australian actress and comedian from New South Wales. And when I was thinking of who I would nominate for this person, I really tried to think of somebody who was local Australian, a woman of Asian descent. And Natalie Tran was the first person that I thought of because I followed her I think when I was, you know, um, in high school and university, and I followed her YouTube channel, Mm -hmm. which is called Community Channel. And growing up, you know, I was constantly looking for role models, and I felt that outside of cooking shows, I really struggled to find people that I could relate to. And Natalie shared her life experiences and her culture, but also her Australian upbringing. And for me, that was really fascinating because she talked about a lot of, I guess, you know, coming of age issues, which Mm -hmm. I think in traditional Asian culture that can be quite quiet or passive, or there are certain things that you don't talk about. She showed me that it was okay to speak up about some things. And coming from, I suppose, um, you know, immigrant parents where hard work and education, are, you know, the forefront of establishing yourself in a new country as a first generation, I guess, Asian Australian, the narrative of what it meant to look successful for me was quite narrow. So I felt like growing up it was really important to study hard, get the good grades, get into a good university and then get a good job. So for me, I feel like the first 20 years of my life was a lot of box ticking. Mm. And of course I have no regrets because I wouldn't be where I am today without it. And I'm so grateful and I have a great appreciation to my parents and, you know, to the culture and what that looked like though for me was doing my best to get into Melbourne University, which I was fortunate to get into. Mm. And then, you know, being one of three things, which yeah. is either a lawyer, a doctor, or a failure. And so, <laughs> and so I picked the third one by going into investment banking. Okay. <laughs> and so that led me to work um, in Hong Kong for a little while at Macquarie Bank. And for me, did not align with, I suppose, my passions and personality at the end of the day. And... Seeing people like Natalie Tran growing up showed me that as a young woman of Asian descent, there are other options, especially with the growth of technology as well. You know, being a YouTuber was not a career when I was growing up. But I know for my children, you know, being a TikTok influencer is a legitimate comm- career now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that yes. is a thing. And so it was really an eye-opener for me just to be exposed to that and to have that visibility. And I think that's what sort of led me down my career path of becoming an innovation expert, working with a lot of startups and scale-ups and supporting women in business now through what I do, which I absolutely love. Yeah,
0: definitely. And and one other thing that we you know, talked about as well with Natalie and what she did. And I also at university loved watching her, her YouTube episodes is really kind of that idea of what it means to be an Asian female and how that's reflected in, I guess, how you approach, you know, your career and your job and growing up in Australia during, you know, the naughties, I guess, you know, in the early 2000s. And that was really for us, our self-formative years and really needing to work extra hard in many ways or to make an extra point to prove ourselves a little bit more. Do you feel the same? Absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head and it
1: sort of It brings me back to this question I've been ruminating on when you asked me to, when when you kindly invited me onto the podcast about clout and the idea of what that means to me. And I think that I've never been more optimistic about the times that we are living in and the growth of, you know, the Chinese and Southeast Asian economies mm. and their diaspora and this beautiful sharing of cultures. And I think it's a really fantastic time, you know, to be alive. And I'm so optimistic for my children growing up that perhaps being of Asian descent and if, if and when they can speak Mandarin too, that will be, you know, something that will be an advantage to them, Because for me personally, I did not directly feel that growing up, not to say I wasn't proud of my heritage and my culture. I've always had that. But I think growing up in a country when you're the minority, I always felt like my success or any successes I had were in spite of my race or, you know, my ethnicity, mm. rather than it's being
0: an advantage to get me to where I wanted to go. Yeah. No, that's a great place to end. And I think the purpose of this podcast and the episodes and the stories is to showcase and challenge in many ways, what the idea of clout really means. And for Frances, as an Asian female growing up in Australia, she has been able to really advocate for women in the communities that she's run and really empower all women, in particular women from minority backgrounds and women of colour, not just Asian women, in what they're doing. So it's definitely something that should be commended. And I'm very inspired by what she is doing. And I also love that she has been very visible in the space that she works and advocates for and is able to bring her unique perspectives from her upbringing, from her education, from her career to the people around her. And that's what we want to show in our show. So thank you very much, Fran, for coming on and giving our listeners a bit of a taster on the different types of clout and the impact that you are making big or small. At clout, we tell the stories of Australians and their journey in leveraging their Asian capability in building clout and making a unique impact in their community. So thank you very much again, Fran, for your time and to share your story with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Lucy. This has been so much fun and very grateful for your time. Thanks.